You want to go ahead and read the thing? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and read the thing. Awesome. All right. The passenger liner SS Andrea Doria was built as a monument to luxury. Decorated by the best of Italy's artists and craftspeople in the most expensive and modern materials available, her mission was to carry passengers across the Atlantic in perfect beauty and comfort, with her crew providing entertainment, relaxation, childcare, and elaborate meals. Her advertising materials explain the cost of your ticket by painting pictures of a beautiful floating hotel complete with unmatched service and a swimming pool in every class. And safety, they assured passengers, was of paramount concern. The best maritime engineers in Italy had made the ship practically unsinkable, even if, God forbid, they were to hit an iceberg, as the Titanic had done just 44 years before. The Andrea Doria was so well designed and equipped that she would stay afloat, and in the unlikely event of an extreme emergency, their state-of-the-art lifeboats had more than enough seats for everyone aboard. For a hundred voyages, their advertisements held true. The Andrea Doria carried her passengers from America to Italy and back in refined elegance and perfect safety, building a reputation as the ship that could be relied on for a quick passage, charming service, spectacular dinners, and the occasional celebrity sighting. On her hundred and first trip, however, something went terribly wrong. The accident that unfolded on that foggy July evening tied the Doria's luxurious reputation to abandonment, death, and loss. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the sinking of the Andrea Doria, and how this shipwreck is still killing people to this day. Welcome to Relative Disasters. The show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Associate Manager of Deep Sea Salvage Diving here at Relative Disasters Corporation. And I'm her brother Greg, Distinguished Professor of Italian Ocean Liner History here at Relative Disasters University. So, I have not heard about the Andrea Doria. What can we... What 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 is this? Get get us started. I mean, <laughs> it is a, the greatest maritime disaster that has ever happened off the east coast of the United States. Um, shipwreck, sort of. Okay. It's a real so this bad is like, shipwreck, Greg. This is. is, what is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So so like in terms of context, this is like the Titanic and then the Andrea Doria. Like they should be like one and two in terms of the public consciousness. They're very different shipwrecks, um, but we are going to talk about the Titanic a little bit. Um, cool. Just, just to compare and contrast, you know, the way we like to do. Sweet. Um, but before we get into it, I want to cite our two main sources for this episode, which are The Last Voyage of the Andrea Doria, which is by Greg King and Penny Wilson, and a book called Setting the Hook, A Diver's Return to the Andrea Doria. That's by Peter Hunt. Okay. Uh, I really enjoyed both of those. So if the story inspires you, please check those out. And right. I don't actually want to start with the Titanic. I would rather start with Mussolini. Oh, sure. Because what disaster isn't made worse by involving Mussolini? Let's do it. He's always good for a disaster. Um, 
Mussolini is, of course, the fascist Italian prime minister. Uh, we're not fans of Mussolini. He had a number of bad ideas during his time in office. I'm trying to put this as as uh, neutrally as possible. <laughs> we, we here at Relative Disasters do not, as a general rule, support fascists. <laughs> no, we, we definitely don't. Uh, he had a number of bad ideas during his time in office, but one idea he had that wasn't bad was his investment in the development of the Italian Line, a shipping company that specialized in passenger liners from Italian ports to various places in North and South America. Okay. So before the outbreak of World War II, this was kind of like a patchy budget service. And sure. of course, during the war, most of their ships were either seized or sunk. And at the end of the war, the Italian line got its four surviving seized ships back. And by the end of the 1940s, they had raised enough money to commission two brand new liners. Now, Italy was still deep in a post-war depression. Right. Uh, thanks, Mussolini. But Americans were ready for a vacation. And it became kind of cheap to film in Italy. So a couple of really popular Italian movies that came out in the late 40s and early 50s kind of made it really fashionable to go visit, okay. like, you know, Venice, Naples, Rome. Right. Uh, but of course... Was this like Roman Holiday? Is I that... think Roman Holiday was a little later. I'm thinking... So Roman Holiday like... may have been, been, been like, uh, inspired by this sort of Possibly. wave of tourism. Okay. I mean, Italy's gorgeous. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> We, no, Italy's beautiful. Italy is a fine place to visit um, and film a movie, but... Just as long as Mussolini's not in charge, you know. No, and he's not. He's not. He uh, <laughs> he exited the stage some time ago. Okay. Yes. Um, so if you're going to Italy for six weeks as a wealthy person who loves pasta, you yep. want to go in style. So the Italian yep. line decided they were going to go for quality over quantity, and they commissioned two extremely fancy liners. These are two steamships called the Cristoforo Colombo and the Andrea Doria. Okay. So the fanciest parts of these ships were their looks. I actually did a little bit of a deep dive into ship decoration, 20th century okay. ship decoration. And it's really weird because like most of the luxury liners doing this transatlantic route between Europe and America were designed to look like they had this kind of like overstuffed kind of country house look. Okay. Like a lot of plush furniture and like sure. stuffy yeah. decoration. Like if you think of the Titanic, I don't know if yeah. you've ever seen pictures of it. It was like yeah, um, yeah, yeah. A lot of gilded wood paneling. Yep. Uh, really fancy couches. Lights. Yeah, yeah. Huge yeah. carpets. Uh, yeah. Terrible yeah. It art. Looked, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It looked like somebody took like a you know a, a Newport mansion of the time and exactly you know, threw That's it out exactly into the, the ocean. They were going for. Yeah. Um. So the designers and and uh, decorators who were responsible for the Andrea Doria took a look at that aesthetic and they were like gonna do something a little different and they went classic all out for mid-century modern and nice. actual art by artists they held wait these, like, a minute no competitions no. for designers <laughs> and architects awesome. and they like had competitions for like who gets to decorate this suite or who gets to like design a mural for this lounge that Just, is so cool especially yeah. because like the art scene at the time in italy was pretty cutthroat like if you could get one of those contracts you needed it right so that's really cool plus like by making it a competition they were like trying to get the best of the the best of the best, best. exactly yeah. 
So I if you look that. at pictures of the Andrea Doria, it looks like a modern art piece. Like we're talking architect design suites and yep. lounges, these gorgeous murals throughout um, parquet floors, like Ooh. gorgeous, sleek, modern furniture, um, recessed lighting. Like it looks dated now, but if you compare pictures of the Andrea Doria's design with something a little more traditional like the Titanic, it's like... right. It's amazingly beautiful. And a lot of the advertising calls it a ship with personality. <laughs> I mean, that's a big deal at the time. Um, and it's just like everything is Italian on board. Everything is designed by Italian artists. It's made in Italy with just the absolute best materials. Even the China service is top quality. So it's got the Italia crest and it's got gold leaf accents throughout all classes. And the top of the line... Like the first class tea service has these cute little like Chinese inspired hand painted dishes. We'll wow. come back to those. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. have a vision in your head of the absolute like fanciest thing in mid-century modern style. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Cool. Uh, so another way they marketed it was to. So they separated classes, passenger class types. They did a first class. Um, but yep. then they use this totally new designation for second and third class, and that's cabin class and tourist class. Okay. Okay. So like so, business and, and traveler class of the day, sort of? Yeah, exactly. If you think about like um, the way planes or plane tickets are sold, you have first yeah. class, business class, and then like, you know, the really uncomfortable, the place where you and I always end up. <laughs> uh, luggage class we call it that it should be called like steerage <laughs> i mean basically yeah um so they're the first this is the first like 20th century travel service to really delineate classes in a way that made them sound nice okay okay um and although they like they really are nice like tourist class on the andrea doria is not comparable to third class or steerage on the titanic right um, so the tourist class is actually the cheapest ticket. So it's around $200 to cross the Atlantic. But it's still really nice. Right. And you still like, like the main difference is space. You don't have a lot okay. of space, but you still get access to these beautiful public spaces, um, beautiful art. Your class has its own swimming pool. So nice. even like as a thrifty traveler trying to save a few bucks by going tourist class, your cabin and public spaces and even your dishes are still, like, very, very nice. Okay. Okay. All right. You know I love to dwell on the decorations. I apologize. But I did want to touch on the engineering as well. So the new okay. ships were, like, top quality uh, throughout. They're using the best steel, the best hardwood. They are making the strongest ships that they can. Um, and this is like at the very beginning of the time when ships were competing with airplanes for long distance travel. Right. And one of the main arguments for traveling by boat was that it was seen as much safer. Sure. Sure. Let's talk about the Titanic again. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That was the big ship accident that most passengers would be familiar with. 
And the designers for the Andrea Doria were very careful to point out that they took all of the Titanic's design flaws into consideration when they designed the Andrea Doria. Okay. So they built in a double hull. Um, yep. They built in more robust watertight compartments at the bottom of the ship. And they included more than enough lifeboats and life jackets for every passenger on board. I don't know if you remember one of the main problems with the Titanic was that they yeah, they, they thought it was unsinkable, enough... so they just like didn't bother with enough lifeboats. Okay. Um, so it sounds like that when they were building the safety features for this, they were kind of uh -huh. correcting for the Titanic. They were solving for all of the flaws that the Titanic, like all of the flaws that caused the Titanic to sink. Right. They did manage to avoid some of the big design problems that led to the Titanic sinking, like the okay. uh, watertight compartments that were not really watertight on the Titanic. They really are watertight on the, the Andrea, Andrea Doria. Doria, and she is designed to stay afloat with two compartments ruptured. Okay. As we're going to see, uh, what's that saying? Man plans. God yeah. laughs. Yeah, something like <laughs> yeah. that. The point is that she is extremely well designed. She's seen as extremely safe, and of course, she's never beautiful. going to fall apart. They do actually call her unsinkable, which isn't is... that kind of like a bad luck charm? <laughs> I think it is. But if you're trying to reassure someone about how safe your ship is, I can see it kind of falling into the advertising material. Okay. When the SS Andrea Doria is launched in 1951, it's advertised as the most beautiful, most comfortable, and safest ship in Italy. So off she goes on her transatlantic route, and the only problem she experiences during this first voyage is just off the coast of Nantucket when a wave knocks into her side during a storm, and she goes into a 28-degree list. Oh, okay. A list is when a ship kind of leans over to one side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 28 degrees is a lot. That's a lot, yeah. Yeah. So ships at this time are designed to withstand a 7-degree list. If you think okay. of the way a ship rolls back and forth in waves, yeah. Um, they're saying that, well, ships need to be able to recover from this 7-degree list. Well, the designers of the Andrea Doria designed her to recover from a 15-degree list which is okay. like a more drastic role. Yeah. And then during the maiden voyage, they see that she can pop right back up after a 28-degree list. Whew. Uh, but it had to have been like absolutely terrifying for people aboard. This is yeah. during dinner time. So all the oh, food God. and furniture goes flying and 20 people are injured. Okay. So it's not a fun, it's not a fun little, whoa, I didn't know she could do that. We're on, yeah. Goodness. Like, it's a serious design flaw. Like, this is the point where her crew realizes that Andrea Doria might have a little ballast problem. Okay. Okay. Now, she's designed to be a tall, skinny ship. She has a lot of decks. She's not very wide across. So her design depends on having a full load of fuel. She needs something like 4,000 tons of diesel fuel to cross the ocean. Jeez. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. So the fuel okay. tanks are in the bottom of the ship, and that's supposed to like keep her balanced to have all that weight at the bottom. But at the end of a voyage, when she's low on gas, Andrea Doria becomes prone to listing. Right, because there isn't as much weight to counterbalance from below. And you absolutely do not want to build a ship that's going to tip over. Like tipping when it runs out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> that's not something anybody wants. No. However, she's already built, and the Italian line is practically broke. She's already booked solid for the next few trips, and they decide that instead of worrying about something that is not likely to happen, 
right? Because remember, uh-huh. she's already shown that she can survive that freak 28-degree list. Yeah, yeah. Yep. They're just going to tell the crew that if she looks like she's going to tip over. Run to the other side. <laughs> no, it's better than that. <laughs> they just say, okay, if you're running low on fuel, just take on some seawater. Fill up those empty gas tanks with seawater and that will add enough weight. Get her through a tough storm. All right. So that's. That's the solution. That's not a great plan because filling diesel tanks with salt water, unless you're going to have some method of completely draining and drying the tanks every time you put in to refuel, you're going to be mixing salt water with diesel fuel. Well, it's my understanding that it's, yeah, it's a huge big deal to do this. Like it would have to be a real emergency. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And it just never gets done. The designers are like, well, you could do this in a real emergency. Mm -mm. No, that's not great. It's okay. We don't love it. But that's the solution they came up with. Okay. This is the point where I, as a passenger, would be like, I don't know if I want to go anywhere on this ship. For the next three years, everything's fine. The Andrea Doria becomes the luxury ship for the Italy to New York route. Of course, she's like known for being gorgeous, but she's also fast. She goes from Genoa to New York in nine days. Nine days to get from Genoa to New York. Yep. Which is like cruising for the 1950s. Yeah, that's really, really good. And she also like develops a really good reputation. So celebrities hop on board, like passengers rave about the food. Uh, So this brings us to July 1956 and her 101st crossing. So of course, on this trip, the ship is like packed to the gills with rich people and fancy things. I don't want to get too into the famous people aboard just because they don't have the most interesting stories. Sure. Uh, But you could just like picture to yourself, we have like actresses and Hollywood people. There's a famous songwriter on board. The mayor of Philadelphia is on board. And then it's just like a bunch of extremely rich and moderately rich Italian or sorry, American families coming back from their Italian vacation. Okay. And then the Italian passengers are Italian or Italian-American, and they're either emigrating from Italy or they're returning from trips home. Altogether, there are 1,706 people aboard, and she is at 90% of her passenger capacity. Okay. So she's fully loaded, but she's not overbooked. And July 25th is the last night of the trip. So by 11 o'clock at night, Like the cocktail parties are winding down and the ship has kind of settled down to prepare. They're supposed to get into New York Harbor at eight o'clock in the morning. And then a few people are still on deck, although the water is calm. They all remark on how foggy it is. Now, at this time, the ship is just off the Nantucket Shoals, which is this very odd and like dangerous patch of water. There's actually a light ship permanently anchored in the area. It's like a mobile lighthouse. Okay. Um, So it works as like a relay station and like a huge beacon to warn ships off the shallow areas. And they move it around as the, I guess, as the shoal pattern changes. (laughs) The Andrea Doria just like zooms on by the Nantucket lightship. She relays her position and, you know, nobody's really concerned. Okay. And nobody has like slowed the ship down or indicated that there's anyone else. She's in a heavy fog. Yeah. About an hour past the lightship. They have a radar screen. Right. It's unclear whether anyone is actually paying attention to it. Okay. But the passengers on deck see through the fog the bright yellow lights of another ship. 
The problem was that the Andrea Doria was going way over the suggested speed for the conditions. She was going almost full speed, that's 21 knots, in order to make her 8 o'clock arrival time. So what they were doing on the Andrea Doria was depending on the radar to warn them of any other traffic, but again, unclear if, you know. And the Andrea Doria's captain, Piero Calamai, did take the precautions of closing the watertight compartments, right? He was sounding the foghorn every few miles. And he, you know, had his officers on alert, but he wasn't slowing down. And that's really common. So the shipping regulations say you're supposed to go down, go really slowly in this heavy fog. Nobody does that because everybody is trying to stay on schedule. Right. He's not doing anything out of the norm. And you can kind of see from this point forward how these little mistakes start building up. So earlier that day, a ship called the MV Stockholm, I had to look this up, that stands for motor vessel. <laughs> I kept seeing MV and thinking it was motor vehicle. And then I was like, that can't be right. (laughs) Motorized vehicle. Motor vessel. Okay. Earlier that day, a ship called the MV Stockholm, which was owned by the Swedish American line, had left New York on her regular trip to Gothenburg, Sweden. Now, she is about a third of the size of the Andrea Doria. She has 742 people aboard. They're in decidedly Uh. less luxurious conditions. Right. She's older. She's not fancy. This is the ship you take when you just have to get where you're going. Point A to point B. Yep. It's not like a pleasure ship. No. The way the Andrea Daria is. Because she operates in the much colder seas around Sweden and Norway, the Stockholm does have one thing that the Andrea Doria doesn't, and that is a solid steel icebreaker bow so that she can follow icebreakers into icebound harbors. Okay. Now at 10 o'clock... Just as the Andrea Doria is passing the Nantucket lightship, the captain of the Stockholm goes to bed. And the ship is heading into the fog at 18 knots, again, well over the recommended speed for the conditions. But like his counterpart on the Andrea Doria, the captain trusts his radar, and he puts his third officer in charge of the bridge, and he heads off to bed. Unfortunately, the ship's third officer has only been on the job for three weeks. He's 26 years old. He is fresh out of maritime college. He doesn't really know how to read the brand new radar equipment. He's been okay. like looking at the manual when he has a minute, but he's not an expert. He doesn't have a lot of experience with it. Okay. He also misses the signal from the light ship that there's another ship ahead. And he's also really concerned with the officer at the helm who has been on the ship for 11 days and also is not very experienced. He keeps Jeez. messing up the steering. Okay. Uh, so like at one point, The ship is like five miles off course. So the third officer has to keep the ship on course. He has to deal with this guy who doesn't really know what he's doing. The fog is like coming and going. And he keeps glancing at the radar, but he's not really sure what's going on. He's just extremely distracted. Yeah, he's got a lot to do. And he can see a blip on the radar that's coming closer. But when he looks ahead, he can't see any lights. And he's just not experienced enough to know what that means. That means much denser fog just ahead, hiding a huge ocean liner speeding directly towards him. So he does not see the lights of the Andrea Doria and realize what's going on until they're practically on top of each other. I read in one book they were a mile apart, which sounds like a large distance. But it's not when you've got to slow from 21 and 18 knots. They're huge ships. They're difficult to move, and they're both going way too fast. So the third officer on the Stockholm immediately orders a hard turn to starboard. Starboard? Starboard. 
starboard uh, right. But this is the absolute worst of these little mistakes. He fails to blow the whistle that would inform the Andrea Doria that he's doing so. And the ships are so big, you can't really see what they're doing. Yep. You, you got to let people know. When the Stockholm turns to starboard, the Andrea Doria turns to port. Which means they're both headed the same direction. Right. So it's kind of like Jeez. the Stockholm steps right and the Andrea Doria steps left. But because they're facing each other. Right. They're going <laughs> too fast to correct um, in time. And the Stockholm rams straight into her side at a speed of 18 knots. The impact creates, of course, a tremendous injury to the Andrea Doria with the icebreaker prow of the Stockholm penetrating 40 feet yep. into the ship in a oh giant... Oh, my God. Yeah, V-shaped. Yeah, it, just cut, it would just cut right through it. Yeah, right. that makes yeah, sense. It just it's meant to cut right through in. ice, you know? Yeah, if you think of like a stab wound <clears throat> where the knife enters and then drags around under the skin before yep. it pops out, yep. that's exactly yep. what happens. So they have God. this like V-shaped cut and then like a huge scrape around as the ship's... Like they're they're both still going really fast, so there's a lot of energy involved in the impact, and it just like grinds around and creates just tremendous damage. Of course, this is felt on both ships, yep. and both immediately shut off their engines so they can try and figure out what happened and assess the damage. On the Stockholm, this is relatively minor. Their reinforced bow is loosened, and twelve of the aft cabins are destroyed. The anchor falls out, and one of their watertight compartments is flooded. Okay. However, five crew members are killed in the collision and dozens more are injured, some really, really terribly. But the damage below the waterline can be controlled by a pump and the watertight okay. compartments are doing their job. So just after midnight, the captain of the Stockholm gets on the PA and tells the passengers, quote, We have collided with the Italian passenger ship Andrea Doria, but there is no danger. There is nothing to worry about. I don't know if I would have added that last part. Wow. Okay. Please remember, like, this is midnight in pea soup fog in the middle of a busy shipping lane inside a ship yep. that has just hit another ship. Like, we love a soothing message, but uh, I don't know but about that last part. That's not it, yeah. <laughs> there is nothing to worry about. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and on the Andrea Doria, Captain Calamai is not saying that because there are a bunch of things to worry about. So the loss of life and the damage that have just been inflicted are just absolutely horrific. There's no other word for it. The Stockholm hit the Andrea Doria at a really vulnerable spot. That's about a third of the way down her side, just under the bridge. Okay. So it pierces through seven of her 11 decks, and it breaks one of the bulkheads running the length of the ship, which leads to immediate flooding of everything below the waterline. And of course, like the mangling and destruction of the passenger cabins inside that scraped out area. Wow. God. So the people, there were people sleeping when that prow came right through the walls, right? Yes. Yeah. And... The way it, of course, there was no warning. No. And the way it hit, it would, like, completely destroy one cabin to the point where there was just nothing left. Yeah. But leave the cabin next door completely undamaged. Yeah. So her <sighs> keel, she's hit with so much force that her keel is bent by the impact. The plating oh on the outside of the hull is God. loose. Yep. And both the fuel and the oil tanks are ruptured. So as she's flooding, she's also bleeding out this bleeding tremendous mass the, of yeah. Yeah, oil and diesel. Mm -mm. Three of her watertight compartments are flooded immediately. She's been designed to have two flooded. Yeah. Um, and since this is the end of her trip, she's not ballasted properly, like I mentioned right. before. 
And they can't just like suddenly realize, oh, this is an emergency that they were telling us about and like pump in seawater to the areas that would balance it out because there's no electricity. Yep. Okay. The generator room, the engine room, and the pump controls are all underwater. Uh, So what that means is that the Andrea Doria is flooding asymmetrically. Yep. So she's going to tip. Yep. Um, So within like seconds to minutes of the collision, the weight of the water that she's taking on is causing her to list. She's leaning over to the starboard side. Now, at this point, about 40 people who are asleep in their cabins or working below decks have been killed by the collision, which, again, happened very fast, completely without warning. Dozens more are injured. Dozens more are trapped in cabins that they can't get out of. Okay. And the captain knows that without power and with that list, he needs to somehow evacuate the ship. Like, this is... (laughs) This is not the kind of accident where you're like, everybody sit tight. We're going to be fine. This is a fatal wound. He knows for sure that the ship is either going to sink or come very close to sinking. And it's his responsibility to get everybody off. So he sends out a a distress call, an SOS. Quote, we need immediate assistance, end quote. I think that's, you know. It's straight into the point right there. It needs more screaming. We need to. Yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what is Morse code for ah? I'm wondering. You just send the letter A over and over again. <laughs> um, so he does give the order to get the passengers on the upper decks and load the lifeboats and get everyone off the ship. But he gives that order in Italian. And it's not clear how many of the passengers actually understood. Speak Italian. Yeah. Okay. Right. Now, the problem that they're having is, of course, because the ship is leaning over at an angle that ends up being between uh, 23 and 21 degrees. Half of the lifeboats are useless. They're like high and dry on that port side, which is way up out of the water. They can't be lowered. Nope. And they can't get to them anyway. Yeah. Right. And the other half of the lifeboats are dangling down at a weird angle. And they're designed to be dropped from davits. Okay. Which are like designed to lower a lifeboat safely down into like down a vertical line right right they're not meant to go sideways <laughs> yeah i mean what is in this world meant to go sideways um but yeah she is in really bad shape as a passenger or crew member below decks trying to reach the lifeboats you first have this problem of trying to navigate up seven or six flights of stairs inside a leaning stairwell, which may or may not have lights, which is inside a sinking ship. Okay. And most of the people aboard have no idea what's going on because their crew is Italian. Uh, Most of the passengers are English speaking Americans. Um, So there's just a lot of general panic and poor decision-making. So the survivors describe the evacuation in very different terms. Some people say they woke up, got their life jackets on, and went upstairs like as a family unit without getting separated, without running into any trouble. And they describe the crew as being orderly and helpful. Okay. Others say there was mass panic. Um, They saw people hoarding life jackets. They were abandoned by the crew or given instructions like, go back to bed. It's very odd. Um, It's likely that some people, particularly the first and cabin class passengers who are closer to the upper decks, just had a much easier time than others. Right. And uh, it's also possible that the crew was a mess and it took longer than it should have to start evacuating. Yep. 
From everything I read, though, it was traumatic and horrible for every single survivor. All right. So at this point, the Andrea Doria has eight operable lifeboats with seats for just over a thousand people. The crew lowers all eight and then begins to load them using rope ladders and nets to lower people down. Because remember, they can't get loaded up top and drop down into the water like they're designed to like they're designed to be because of the angle. They lower down the injured and the children first, but it's really chaotic, and as the first lifeboats get away, they head to the closest ship, which is the Stockholm, and it is about three miles away. The Stockholm's anchor got dropped, <laughs> so at least they're staying in one place. The Andrea Doria is like floundering all around, but at yeah. least these people can in the lifeboats can see the lights and know where they're supposed to be going. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, is the is the Stockholm in any condition to help survivors? Okay, so the Stockholm looks really rough, but it's not actually sinking. And it, it wasn't hurt too badly, it just got its, you know, hulls screwed up, right? Right. And okay. the engineering that went into the Stockholm that designed it to float in case of an accident, actually worked pretty well. The problem is that it's much smaller than the Andrea Doria, and yeah. their infirmary, their little hospital, is full of the sailors who were injured in that collision. So they're getting the injured people and the kids, and they're really not able to do much for them. Uh, but by now, the U.S. Coast Guard is also on the way. So remember, like the Titan unlike the Titanic, this isn't in the middle of the Atlantic. This accident right. occurred relatively close to the Coast Coastal Guard station. Yeah. yeah. In uh, Cape Cod and Woods Hole, both of which have rescue ships on the way within 20 minutes of the SOS. Isn't that amazing? Wow. They must be like firemen ready to go at all times. Jeez. Also, the Andrea Doria is in the same shipping corridor as the French luxury liner Ile de France, which had passed her earlier in the evening. And they're only about 44 miles away at the time of the collision. Okay. Now, they hear the SOS, and they cable the Andrea Doria to ask what kind of help she needs, because they have no idea. They're way out of, way out of right. the way. They don't know what's going on. And although right. they don't get a response from the Andrea Doria, they hear back immediately from one of the Coast Guard ships, quote, Andrea Doria wants to disembark 1,500 passengers and crew. Strongly suggest you have all your lifeboats ready to assist. <laughs> Strongly suggest. <laughs> Yes, please. I think but that's still. probably for the best, right? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, so the Ile de France turns around and prepares to help out. The evacuation from the Andrea Doria is just an absolute chaotic mess. Children are right. separated from their parents. Uh, couples are separated. People with injuries are either left behind or dropped into lifeboats. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of panic as the ship's list increases because... It must have felt like she was getting ready to roll over. Right. And nobody could really, like, there's no manual that tells you how many minutes you have on a ship at a 22 degree list before yeah. she capsizes. There's there's not good math on that one. <laughs> Fortunately. Uh, yeah. Jeez. Um, so the list is, is by this time so severe that people are also having trouble getting to the low side of the boat like the lower railing to get onto a lifeboat right. without getting tangled up on the deck furniture and the broken glass that has collected on the low side and people also have to take their shoes off to get a better grip on the wooden deck as they cross right that makes sense once you reach the side 
you still have to climb over all that broken furniture and broken glass to get to the boat. You have to wait your turn, which must have been maddening. And then you have to drop down from the railing into a little metal boat drifting below, like you're dropping down on a rope or a net or like yep. this, this horrible little rope ladder. And you still have yeah. a 10-foot drop at the end. So as you can imagine, there are many, many injuries just yep. from getting off the ship and into a lifeboat. There are many people who fall between the boat and the oh, Andrea God. Doria and have to get fished out. Yep. Okay. So once the boat is loaded, they pull away and head for the closest lights. That's the Stockholm. So the first batch of evacuees go to the Stockholm, where the infirmary is immediately overwhelmed. And the Swedish-American crew has to figure out also what to do with all these little kids, many of whom don't speak English and are separated from their parents, some of whom are too young oh, to really know God. what's going on. Yeah. This is, yeah, okay. It's, it's, a, it's nightmare material. Yep. If you think about like putting your three-year-old on a tiny little boat, yeah, no, sending I'm not off thinking to the ship that, that has just much. hit your ship and possibly is also sinking, I just yep. nightmare material. Okay. Yep. Also, the captain of the Stockholm is not 100% sure that the ship is going to stay afloat. And like yeah. I said, if you... Wait, the captain of the Stockholm? Yeah. He's worried about the Stockholm sinking or he's worried about the Andrea Doria? I don't know that he... I'm sure he cares about the Andrea Doria, but he's really concerned with keeping. He's his concerned about his own ship. You know, right. I understand. I just wasn't which sure which one you were talking aboard. about. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, <clears throat> and actually, if you look at pictures of the damage, like the whole prow of the ship is like it looks like tinfoil that's been pinched and is like Eesh. ripped a little bit. It just doesn't look seaworthy at all. But the watertight compartments are working. She manages to stay relatively stable. Uh, fun fact, after this accident, the MV Stockholm was rebuilt and uh -huh. sold a bunch of times and renamed. She is still afloat today as a cruise really? ship called the Astoria. She sails between Lisbon and Fulshall in uh, Portugal. Huh. She's 73 years old. She is the oldest passenger liner still in commercial use. <laughs> okay. So she's not sinking. Uh, but cool. they don't know that. <laughs> okay, so the Coast Guard arrives just as the fog is beginning to clear up, and they realize immediately they don't have enough space for everyone on their rescue ships. The Coast Guard is, is in these little cutters. Yep. And remember, this is a huge liner, well over 1,500 people. They just don't have enough space for everyone. So what okay. they do is they take a few of the people with serious injuries. Uh, some of those are helicoptered back to hospitals in Boston. And then they use their rescue boats to get people off the Andrea Doria first to the Stockholm, and then to the Ile de France as she arrives. Right. And they try to do women and children first. Yeah. Unclear if that actually happened. Like a lot of what the survivors describe is just like mass panic, chaos, struggling for a seat in the lifeboat, struggling for a life jacket. So the Ile de France, because it's so much bigger than any of the other ships involved, she takes on the most survivors. She ends up with over 700 people. And they do it very hospitably. Uh, the crew puts together this huge hot meal in the middle of the night. They find pillows and blankets. And they do their best to help people find their family members and get cleaned up. Because remember, most of the people coming off the Andrea Doria are coming off like bruised and scraped. They're covered in yep. oil. They're yep. drenched. They're cold. And they're wearing either evening clothes, pajamas, yeah. or yep. underwear. Like, nobody's dressed for this. And everyone's barefoot because they all left their shoes behind. So one woman remembers waiting on the deck of the Andrea Doria for hours. She makes it into a lifeboat, thinking that the ship was going to come down over their heads, right? And then they're, like, trying yep. to get away as fast as they can on this tiny little outboard engine. So if the ship does capsize, it doesn't pull them down as well. 
Right, because it's going to generate a huge wake when it goes huge, down. Huge, yeah. So she makes it to the Ile de France and she waits her turn and she climbs up this rickety rope ladder for what feels yep. like miles because yep. Ile de France is a very tall ship. She makes it to the top. She steps aboard just completely exhausted, completely spent. And, and this French they... sailor appears from out of nowhere, wraps a blanket around her, kisses her on both cheeks and says, you're going to pardon my terrible French here. Uh-huh. Eh bien, madame, c'est fini, n'est-ce pas? Et tout va bien. Right? It's all good, madame. It's all good. It's over. <laughs> it's all You're over. Fine. Everything's yep. fine. Yeah. I mean, Yikes. it must have felt like arriving in heaven. Heaven. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, I mean, I will say this. The French can be a very welcoming people, especially <laughs> when they're rescuing you from a disaster. They're happy to do it. All in all, this incredible rescue results in 1,660 survivors with 46 passengers and crew of the Andrea Doria lost and five deaths aboard the Stockholm. So nearly okay. everybody on the Doria who survives the initial collision makes it off the ship alive by dawn. It's just, it's absolutely miraculous. It's, you know, one of the great maritime rescues in Coast Guard history. The captain and the officers are the last to leave. So okay. until dawn the next morning, they're trying to think of a way to tow the Andrea Doria to shore because remember, she's not that they're far they're not that far out. Right? They're like, surely we can do this, um, but it's just not possible without power and with the amount of damage that she suffered. Okay. So at 10.09 the next morning, as the captain and the officers watch from a Coast Guard ship, the Andrea Doria finally capsizes and sinks 45 miles south of Nantucket Island. Okay. There's a lawsuit. Um, there are several... Were there still people on board when it went down? There were at least three people trapped in their cabin who couldn't get out. Uh, who for sure were alive when their deck was being evacuated. There are probably okay. more people who were knocked unconscious right. and couldn't make it right. out. One guy describes okay. being on morphine in the infirmary, and he gets kind of washed out. Like, he, he sleeps through the collision. He oh, sleeps. my God. He, you know, is drugged. He The collision yeah. doesn't. Like, he wakes up, and the ship is listing, and he's like, what's going on? And he just, like, jumps How off the boat. How high am I? <laughs> <laughs> right? He just, like, gets out of his room, wow. goes up the stairs, goes onto the deck, and is like, I should get off the boat, and, like, jumps overboard and gets picked up by someone. But um, those people are the exception, unfortunately. Jeez. And almost everybody who, you know, survives the collision is able to get off safely. Okay. All right. I don't want to go into the lawsuit. It's a lot of finger pointing. Um, It doesn't seem to end up with anything substantive. Like you would think that the officer aboard, the third officer aboard this. And aboard the Stockholm, yeah. Would go to jail, but it doesn't seem like he does. No. Because all of these ships are registered in different countries. And apparently you can't just sue people in American court for causing accidents. Right. I don't know. Well, there's international water laws. There's also like... If this is the, you know, if this is how things were done, it's going to be really hard to prove that this guy, you know, was actively negligent without anybody else being actively ne- Yeah, that's just, a, it's, a, it's a mess. Right, and it's not, I don't yeah. think you could bring a charge like manslaughter against this dude. He was clearly overwhelmed. He was clearly underexperienced. Right. But the captain had put him in charge. The captain, and there's also not... There's it, it, there's not really a manslaughter equivalent. Exactly. Like, you want to find someone to blame for this horrible accident, but I just don't think it, it really happens in this case. It's, it's 
a lot of people made poor choices to lead to this whole thing. Like that's the and you know at ugh. at the bottom of it, really, it's an accident. So almost immediately, people start making plans to dive to the wreck and see if they can salvage it. I don't know if I really went into this in depth earlier, but the Andrea Doria was a luxury liner. Yeah, yeah, did I, it did sounds I talk nice. A little bit about that, yeah, a little tiny bit. You might have glossed over it. Uh, she sank with an incredible amount of money and art aboard. So some of the yeah. things that people wanted to salvage included the safes where the passengers had locked up their jewelry, mm-hmm. the uh, statuary and the copper panels that decorated the lounges. There is a very expensive and beautiful concept car that Chrysler commissioned from an Italian car maker down in the garage. Okay. Uh, the kitchen is full of nice wines. Okay. Uh, a few passengers say there were rumors of a massive cache of uncut diamonds aboard. Meh. Probably not Maybe. true. Probably not true. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you look at it, it's like a treasure ship. And all of that treasure is available to anyone who cares to make the dive. Except. <laughs> you want to go out this weekend? Doesn't that sound fun? No, it doesn't. It sounds terrifying because I know the rest of this part. <laughs> right. So the dive is not that simple. I already described to you the Nantucket Shoals, which are muddy and full of currents and incredibly cold. So that's kind of the neighborhood of the place where Andrea Doria ended up. She herself is lying on her side in about 240 feet of 40 degree murky water, which is also full of sharks. It is hours away from the closest harbor and hospital, and it is under a very busy commercial shipping corridor. So in order to do this dive, you need like all kinds of training, you need credentials, you need references, you need to charter a boat. There are only a couple who will even take you out there. And you need to spend a small fortune in equipment and gear. And if you do happen to find something in the wreck that's incredibly valuable, like if you do come up with a bag of uncut diamonds, there's also no guarantee that the owner of the wreck, that's the Italian insurance company who bought the title after they paid out the loss to the Italian line, isn't right. going to sue you for ownership. Right. Because this wasn't that long ago. You're not diving into an ancient Spanish galleon. Right. You're not looking for pirate treasure. This is uh, treasure with a legal title attached. Yep. Now, physically and practically, moving around inside the wreck requires experience with dropping down into silt very gently. Yep. Like you have to have the ability to navigate these dark, cramped spaces without getting lost. Uh, and nope. you also need to avoid or be able to somehow untangle yourself from the electrical cords floating around inside the wreck as the ceiling decays and all the wiring drops down. And okay. on the outside, you have fishing nets and monofilament fishing lines, which have caught up on the wreck from the outside. Uh, it's still leaking oil, which can mess up dive equipment. And yep. as an artificial reef, it is also full of fish and other sea creatures yes so for a while in the 90s divers described it as the mount everest of dives and like climbing mount everest the wreck of the andrea doria becomes very very attractive to divers who want to push the limits of their bodies and their equipment also like mount everest a good number of people who make the dive don't come home so since 1956 at least 22 people have died trying to dive to the andrea doria Right, because that's incredibly dangerous. That's a nasty dive. I mean, silt on a capsized on its side ship, like you're not, that's leaking oil and home to a ton of marine life. That's not, that's not a good afternoon, guys. So you or I would look at the wreck and be like, that's not a good afternoon. But 
some people don't. Some people are like, that is where I want to be. And they do mm-hmm. it. Uh, two days after the sinking, department store heir Peter Gimble dives down to film the wreck. And this begins okay. a 20-year obsessive relationship with the Andrea Doria that culminates in his 1981 salvage of the ship's safe. So after a lot of hard work and a ton of money, he brings it up. He puts it in a saltwater tank and he opens it on live TV in 1984. Guess what's inside? Nothing. <laughs> Not quite nothing. Uh, $300 in $20 bills. And in some traveler's money? checks. Yeah, and paper money. Underwater. Okay. Underwater. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that in, sounds great. Nothing's in great shape. He had a good time. He got what he was after. Sure. Uh, filmed a very interesting documentary. But yeah, after this, uh, Peter Gimble does not keep going back to the Andrea Doria. Uh, uh. And in fact, this is like how it goes with salvaging the Andrea Doria. So divers risk their lives. They spend tons of money to get, if they're super lucky, a piece of china from the first class service. Ideally, they want the hand-painted chinoiserie pieces that were hand-painted right. by the Italian firm of Richard Genori. Uh, Obviously, that china is beautiful, but it's not very valuable except as a dive trophy. I looked up a couple of the saucers, and you can buy them on eBay for $50. Yeah. So risk your life for 50 bucks, people. Uh, So since the commercial salvage attempt stopped in the 1990s, most divers have stayed away from the interior of the wreck, which is excellent because it is extremely dangerous inside. Uh, In 2016, on the 50th anniversary of the sinking... A company called Ocean Quest tried to put a submersible down into the ship, like inside, okay. to assess how the superstructure was collapsing. Right. That was called off after a couple days when the weather became dangerous. It's it's not clear what kind of shape the ship is in now. It's thought that the structure of the ship is either rapidly collapsing or has already collapsed. I was unable to find a source that would say for sure. And I think part of the problem is just, like, this is not a Caribbean shipwreck in clear, beautiful water. This is, like, a mud bath at the bottom of the ocean. Right, right. So it's it's just really, it's not the kind of thing you could just send a camera down and be like, oh, is it still around? People are still diving down there, though. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to this little YouTube video from some divers who went down last year. And you can see okay. how spooky it looks, like, even just cruising by the outside and looking in the portholes. Sure. Uh, yeah. You can also see how much time and equipment you need to go down there. It's like amazing. They have this rig of five separate scuba tanks, uh, five regulators. It's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of that's, equipment to get down yeah, there. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and it also sounds like, you know, one of those things where the slightest mistake and you're never coming up again. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Ugh. very, very experienced divers have died on this dive. Many of the survivors are still alive and have written memoirs or given interviews about their experiences. You can okay. read about those online. I'm going to put a couple sources in the show notes. Right. One thing I found that I thought was really interesting was a letter by a man named Lester Sinas. He was a first-class passenger aboard the Ile de France. He describes okay. waking up to an anchored ship, which had to have been so creepy. Like, uh, you go to bed, uh, the ship yep. is, like, plowing through at 25 knots. You're going to be in Europe in a couple of days. So he describes waking up in an anchored ship and hearing distant screaming. 
And he tells his friends in this letter all about how the evacuees looked and what they described about the sinking, as well as what the Andrea Doria looked like as it sank, because the Ile de France was close enough to see, like, as she rolled over in the water. Okay. Okay. So he concludes the letter with, quote, After bringing the survivors back to New York to the accompanying congratulatory toots and blasts from tugboats and liners, we set off for Europe once more, and life has just about returned to normal. But I have seen sights that I shall never forget. Then he ruins it by adding, Incidentally, I would have given my eye teeth for a better camera than I have and a telescopic lens. (laughs) Oh, no. Come on, Lester! And that is the bizarre and tragic story of the wreck of the Andrea Doria. Wow. That is that is crazy. I don't like I, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, massive mistakes made and then all of a sudden. Yeah, it's it's got so many of my nightmares all wrapped up into one. We have like crowds of panicking <laughs> people. We have being trapped on a sinking, sinking ship. We have yep, uh, yep. scuba diving and sharks. You don't want to be swimming in the dark with them, man. I mean, come on. I now. don't want to be treasure hunting if I know for sure mm. that sharks are going to be cruising around as well. True true all right well cool well although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible if you'd like to read more about our sources a complete bibliography is available in our show notes if we got anything wrong please let us know you can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com or if you'd like to shame us publicly why not use our instagram at relative.disasters Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? So what we're going to look at next time is one of the origins for the phrase Act of God. We're going to be looking at Black Monday of 1360. An event during the Hundred Years' War, where over a thousand soldiers and, in some reports, 6,000 horses were killed over the course of a single night, but not in battle. The horses, too? Yeah, sorry about the horses. All right. Well, uh, I am afraid of this episode, and (laughs) it's going to give me nightmares. No, it's going to be great. (laughs) like fun. Can't wait to talk to you about it.